Hello, my name is Lance Williamson, and this is the Prevention Pod, um, where I will be having conversations with infection preventionists all around the Kansas City metro and maybe even beyond eventually. Today I have a guest uh, with me, my first guest. So first of all, thank you so much, Casey, for being the first guest on the pod. And uh, Casey has been an IP for four years, and you've been all across the nation as an IP, Florida, Iowa, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just so happy that you're my first guest. Uh, we kind of made a strong connection at APIC uh, National Conference this year when we were sweating in the Florida <laughs> heat and humidity. Yes. So um, welcome, Casey Simos, to the pod. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Very good, yes. Um, so this is a podcast where we're going to be having discussions with infection preventionists, um, just kind of learning about our experiences. Um, we're going to be getting into some history of infection prevention. And um, my first focus is going to be on the Kansas City metro area and learning from IPs around here. And then we might expand from that. Um, and so Casey, um, wanted to just get an overview of your history. Um, how did you get into infection prevention? Yeah, so my experience uh, getting to infection prevention has definitely been interesting. Um, I think all of us as IPs can relate to that, um, not really having a linear path to becoming an infection preventionist. So I actually learned about infection prevention when I was an undergraduate student. I was doing my degree in public health, and I took one intro class for infection prevention and thought it was just the coolest thing ever. Um, I had really no idea what it was or, you know, that was the path that I was going to go down. But, you know, I took this one class and it really interested me. So I didn't think about becoming an IP at that time. And there was actually a, a gap in time where I didn't come back to infection prevention until grad school a few years later. But at that point, you know, I was doing my MPH in epidemiology. I really wasn't interested in a lot of the topics that I was learning um, in my specific program. Um, so I reached out to our one infectious disease epidemiologist at my college and, you know, talked to him about the struggles that I was having making connections outside of the infectious disease, disease world. And he introduced me to infection prevention. You know, how have I ever heard about um, hospital epidemiology? And I was like, yeah, you know, I did take a couple of classes in undergrad and was really interested and didn't think it was you know, something that I would do, you know, that kind of opened my eyes to, you know, this is something I can do. Um, so I went and started shadowing as a grad student and really fell in love with it. And so I began working as a grad student for the infection prevention program. And then when a spot opened up, that is how I got into the field. I applied for that position. That is really cool. I like that. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that when you talk to IPs, um, especially the ones that I work closely with, like we all have pretty um, just kind of maybe weird circumstances or uh, of getting into the the profession. I think like nobody has like a linear path in there. And 
um, it's pretty interesting. So, um, and I think, you know, at some point on this pod, I will share kind of how I got in, but, um, I think we all kind of experience just a variety of ways that we get into this profession. And then we learn that it's so vast. There's like so many things you can do within infection prevention and we all kind of fit our little niches in there. So it's uh, pretty cool. I do want to say that, um, I forgot to mention this. Casey is currently wrapped in a blanket in my <laughs> house because it's so cold in here. So Casey's uh, quite the trooper for, for doing this. So I really appreciate that. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about um, some like key milestones in your career. So what are the things that stick out to you in your career that are like big ones for you that maybe are your most proudest moments or like moments that really like carved your way through infection prevention that stick out to you? I will say looking back and just being an IP for a few years, surviving the COVID pandemic, yeah. um, you know, being a new IP at the end of 2019, not knowing what's going to happen uh, really in a few months after starting. Um, it was really that baptism by fire yeah. feeling that I got. So I am really proud that that was my first big life career changing experience as an infection preventionist was, you know, you don't get to learn really a lot about infection prevention in a normal sense. It's infection prevention coded in COVID. So everything right. you do is impacted by COVID. And so I think it definitely made me stronger because I saw a lot of people leave the field during the pandemic. People that have been infection preventionists for 10, 15, 20 years. And it was a lot. It took a lot out of people. It really pushed a lot of people out of the field, but it also pulled a lot of people into infection prevention. So I think going through that entire experience and still kind of, you know, seeing the impact of COVID even today, um, as we speak, COVID numbers are going right back up as they happen. For the last couple of years around this time, but, you know, still having that pride that like, I did it, you know, we saw this huge peak, we were at our lowest levels, and that was the start of my career. So I think it can really only go up from here. I'm really excited <laughs> to see. I hope we don't have, yeah. you know, any more pandemics like that. But I think that has made me so much more prepared for if something were to happen. You know, we did see MPOX kind of have a surgeons. Yeah. And I felt more prepared. I wasn't as nervous um, to see a novel or reemerging disease come back into the to the scope of our practice. So yeah. that is a really big milestone. Going into a leadership position made me feel validated yeah. um, that I do know what I'm doing and that people trust me and come to me as a leader and getting my CIC. So I think those those pivotal changes really made me feel more confident as an infection preventionist and built yeah. a lot of trust. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you you mentioned that. I mean, obviously, like, I think when I was thinking about how I'm going to be talking to IPs with this pod and thinking about this, like we have to talk about COVID. Like this mm -hmm. is just, I know at least a lot, me, myself, I'm, I'm, there's times when I'm like, I don't ever want to talk about COVID again. <laughs> I'm so over it, but it's such like a seminal moment in all of our careers. Um, and it like for you, you started what, a few months before COVID began. Yep. Um, and I started in my like leadership position right before that. And so you did too. So we were both kind of new leaders mm -hmm. and um, it's just kind of crazy to think about like 
that trial by fire and what you said really resonated with me with like feeling a sense of we can handle these things now like inbox comes around two years after covid does and we have a global outbreak and many people were like freaking out the headlines were you know going crazy about that and it's like we were kind of ready and just well you know we had all these like systems in place and i do think that's like one of the silver linings of the covid pandemic is that once you've been through like the worst possible thing it's like <laughs> you can nothing scares you anymore, yes you know like, yes we definitely have things that are really high stress but i mean the fact that we we're still standing after that i'm like I feel a sense of freedom. Yeah. Wanted to discuss how do you think the approach to infection control has evolved over the years? And I think with our conversation with COVID, we've seen a big change in our approach to infection control. Um, and like what changes have been most impactful? Have there been like advancements or changes made in the last couple of years that you think has made it better? What do you think about that? There's been a lot of new technology in terms of, um, you know, what we do with surveillance, how we are tracking and monitoring things outside of, you know, HAIs. So from an environmental sense, but those systems that we have have also advanced a lot. So one thing that I always like to talk about, because I think it's just absolutely fascinating, is the, the surveillance systems that we use. So I know that you have a different system um, than what we use at our hospital, and I've used two others in my other experience, um, but things like where we're tracking our HAIs and how we look at metrics, you know, outside of the role of NHSN, where it's a little bit more standardized, we can do a lot with the systems that we have that the idea is to get us away from the computers, but I think sometimes it gets us to sit at the computers more because we're looking at a lot of data. We're doing a lot of data validation um, so I think from that sense, like the advancements in technology on the surveillance side have really improved over time, um, but it does create a lot more work for us. The technology has gotten better. The resources have gotten better. Um, but I think that also comes with us as infection preventionists doing a lot more work to ensure that those systems and those processes are accurate and that we understand them and can use them to our advantage. Yeah. So it, as that grows, we also have to grow with it and, mm -hmm. and make it better because it does take a lot of work to have these amazing advancements work appropriately for us. Yeah, like that's such a good point because at least in my experience, um, you know, the people that I work with, especially like, um, you know, I work with IPs who are focused on like data and surveillance. And what we find is that we, when we have like more automation and more ability to have systems work for us, it actually is like, seems like more work for us to do mm -hmm. because you got to make sure that, that all those processes are continuing and working the right way. Like the amount of validation we do in our roles, A I lot. think it's all in the background. Like people don't realize like, you know, just thinking of like device validation and validating that our um, logic works on rules mm -hmm. on software it's like non-stop and so yeah. I think you have this like perfect world where oh yeah we're gonna have all these systems that like do it for us and we're gonna use AI to like identify infections for us but the good thing is like I don't think we'll ever like make it so that the IP is irrelevant I think right. like, it'll just be more and maybe some different work for us to do yeah. and I know that there's like 
you know, CDC is working on ECR, like electronic case reporting that eventually will look amazing, right? Mm -hmm. It'll be like everything is automated between all these programs. And I think like eventually maybe all the hospitals will be on one like software <laughs> that they use. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? Yes. Um, but, you know, um, and I think, again, we have to think, you know, we did so much more um, like virtual work with COVID. And I think that really changed the way that I think about infection prevention is that, you know, we were just working 24 seven at the time, just cause it, that was what was required of us. And we were all over the place. And I think it like taught us that like, oh, you don't have to be sitting in the IPAC office mm -hmm. um, to, to be effective. To be effective. Yeah. Like you can be all over the place on the phone, traveling on your laptop somewhere, or even just, you know, doing your rounds wherever the work is happening. Yeah. I think that has been a really big advantage um, as an IP currently seeing how much flexibility that we got because people understood we were the ones taking the phone calls yeah. all night long, all weekend, holidays, everything. So giving us that flexibility to do some of that work from home using those technologies at yeah. home, at least for me, gave me a lot more energy back. So when I was there in person to do rounds, um, to have meetings, I I felt like I was able to do that. Like I didn't need to go back to my computer because I had done a lot of that work yeah. at home, you know, I came in a little bit later that day and was able to work through a lot of those things that needed to be done in person. So that has been an advantage um, for me and my team, I think. Right. Yeah. And you also mentioned that IPs, you know, we, a lot of times we're asked to go beyond like the scope of an IP. Like, I feel like we're such great facilitators. We mm -hmm. know a lot of people in the healthcare environment we have a lot of like resources that we're aware of because our scope is so wide that like we have to use those resources and be aware of that. Um, and at least, you know, I, I know many teams, um, you know, you have different ways to be on call and as leaders, like we're, we discussed earlier, like mm -hmm. we're on call, like most of the time as like a de facto person to get a hold of if there's a problem. And because of that, um, we we have to be facilitators we have to be able to like connect people and to get conversations started even when it's beyond our scope and you know that's like a gripe that i have a lot is that you know we get asked to do things that are beyond our scope but sometimes i'm like maybe it is within the scope of infection control to like yeah. connect the dots yeah and to be a facilitator so it's something that i'm like proud of when i'm thinking back on it but at the time, I'm like frustrated that I have to do yes. these things, you know? Yeah. So um, I love that. Okay. I wanted to hear about um, what are some success stories you've had in your work as an IP? Like things that you've had like a creative way to get a project going or to re uh, reduce uh, poor outcomes for patients. What are some key success stories you want to share? Yeah, I have one that I think I will always talk about because I'm very proud of um, a project that we did that was so simple yet so effective for our patients. Um, at our hospital, we have a, a big focus on improving our antimicrobial stewardship practices. Um, so when I first came to my current role, we had a lot of C. diff. We had a very high rate of C. diff. 
Um, we were seeing over 30 events in a year, which is a lot for our hospital. And we kind of just took a step back and instead of trying to make a lot of complex changes, um, we were like, well, what type of testing are we doing? You know, because um, that plays a really big impact on your HAI rate for C. diff when you look at an HSN, but also has a really big impact on knowing what type of treatment you need to give for your patient because we were also seeing a lot of VRE coming through our hospital. So we discovered that we could change our testing type from a one-step to a two-step that would better help determine, you know, what type of treatment does this patient need, but also, you know, at the end of the day, it's that final result that you get that's going to impact your positivity rate for NHSN. So once we changed that, we were able to get our numbers down to four this year. Wow. So knock on wood, it is the 31st um, yeah. of December. So yeah, we were able to go from 33 to four hospital onset wow. C. diff cases and had a really big impact on our bank um, prescriptions. So, you know, that is a really big thing when you think about it. It's such a simple change, um, had such a big impact on our hospital that I'm really proud of it because you do think sometimes you, as an infection preventionist, it's, you're looking at it from every single angle, like what we have to fix everything that we think is wrong. But sometimes, you know, when you look at it in the most simple way, you're like, okay, let's start with this first thing and see how that impacts it. And for us, it was a really positive outcome that we were able to do with the help of a couple of other leaders to get that change, that change in the test type, be proactive on the prescribing side. And now look at us, we are, you know, meeting our goals and I'm really proud of that as an infection preventionist because C. diff is such a challenging topic, I feel like, to, to get a hold of um, and decrease those rates that quickly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think I've, I've heard of that same um, success with the testing method, and um, I'm really glad you all did that. Um, uh, that is an awesome reduction, and I think, like, then it seems like to me then you can you're like released now to focus on, you know, cause we do, we do see that like C. diff can transmit in the hospital. And like, we felt like, you know, I've, I've been in situations where we felt like we were chasing our tails, like we were doing everything we could possibly do, but we were not reducing it at all. And then, mm -hmm. you know, when we do these like hardcore investigations, we're like, okay, it doesn't really seem like this is transmitting from patient to patient. It's like, we're just testing all of these people and we have this like extremely sensitive PCR test. Yes. It's like, it's capturing all these people that either have like community onset or maybe they're even colonized. And cause if you look at like who is predisposed to C. diff, it's like all of 90% of the, our patients right. all the time. Right. It's like, like it's a big one to tackle. And yeah. you know, there comes that part where you're able to kind of look at the testing piece because I think I recall you, mentioned you guys had also transitioned yeah. within the last year to two-step testing. Um, that opens up the door to look at uh, the diagnostic stewardship side of it too, right. of who actually needs to be tested. So that is something that we're now able to look at the data uh, more closely to see what who is actually meeting that criteria. Are we testing appropriately? So that might also decrease the amount of testing that we're doing. Yeah, definitely. That is a really great success story. I love that. Thank you. What are some like common like day-to-day -day challenges that an IP faces like in your experience and how do you overcome them you think? <laughs> <Why are> you <laughs> <laughs> because, 
<laughs> I don't know if you have days like this or if it's just me. Like every day, there always seems to be maybe something, even if it's just one thing that kind of throws me off as an IP. Oh, and I'm absolutely. like, you know, did I really just see that? You know, and I have to stop and like put myself in the perspective of that person that I see and try to understand it from yeah. their lens. Um, but I'm just laughing because that does happen to me almost every day. These challenges of like, am I not getting, you know, messages across? Am I not rounding enough? Am I not doing, you know, effective education? Um, but we do have to give ourselves a little bit of a break because there are a lot of people that work at the hospital. For us, there's really only two of us in infection prevention there full time. So, you know, for us to catch everything all the time is going to be impossible. Yeah. Um, but it always seems to be uh, when I'm rounding, it's the wrong, the person's there at the wrong time. You know, infection, of course, infection prevention is rounding. <laughs> I have to share this with you that I, I thought was pretty funny. Uh, I saw a nurse with an used N95 sitting on her forehead <laughs> and I like did a double take and I was like, you know, I have to do it. Like I, I would feel like a bad infection preventionist if I didn't stop, go back and say, hey, probably want to throw that out. Um, but you just see those things and you're like, I would never, I would never do that as an infection preventionist. But you know, some people might not actually realize I know. how grossed out we get. when <laughs> We see things like that, but a lot of educational opportunities. So that's what I'm just laughing about. Yeah, that's a good point is like the, the common challenges are the things that are like the unco uncommon thing that you get asked every day, right? That you then have to like go down a rabbit hole to figure out. And a lot of times that's like the fun part too. It's like we do get to be kind of investigators and it's not always like investigating an outbreak. Sometimes it's like, okay, I need to learn everything there is to learn about like why we can't have a decorative fountain in this hospital mm -hmm. and like then debate that with the people that want the fountain. You know? Right. Yes. <laughs> so you're learning about, you know, the American Legion and like the AC that, yeah. Like started all of the Legionella stuff. So. <laughs> and then you kind of are reminded by like why we like to do this, you know? Yeah. It is like a discovery. We're like detectives and you get to learn these cool things and prevent these things from happening. And okay, we've talked a bit about collaboration. Um, do you have any like, what are some like really great collaboration efforts you've had in, in your past as an IP? Like, have there been times when like, you've been surprised by how great a, uh, a collaboration was with a different multidisciplinary group? There's a lot of power in collaboration and having relationships with a lot of people. The hardest part of doing that is essentially the time that it takes yeah. to learn all the people that you need to know to be involved, to make changes, um, their different styles, the different approaches that you need to take, and then really getting those people together and being the facilitator of something that you want to change that's going to impact the amount of work that they do, or you know, it's not going to be infection prevention's um, initiative to guide them on a day-to-day -day basis on the change that you want to make. So the best example I can think of this is our hand hygiene policies and how difficult it can be to get people all on the same page about, you know, nail length and oh, yeah. nail polish and um, even like surgical hand scrub, what just all of the aspects of products. So I recently had a hand hygiene work group where I brought leaders from 
different areas. Um, you know, how can we tackle this as a team to get the outcomes that we want? Because historically it's been, well, infection prevention says this. It's infection prevention's rule, so we have to follow this. And I don't think that is very impactful and doesn't get you very far. Infection preventionists are, I think, very notorious for being the bad guys. They're the hand hygiene police, right? It's not because infection prevention said so. There's a lot that goes behind the decisions that we make. And I don't want to be the infection prevention department that just has this authority of we're going to tell you what to do and you have to follow it and like not give that explanation. So with my hand hygiene work group, having all these leaders, we talked about their challenges. We talked about what is the right thing to do? What is the regulatory requirement? And I really walked them through why we have to do certain things. And I think that gave them a sense of, I have a say in what we do. Um, so we all work together to get these changes through IPAC committee. And um, you know all of their names are on it. And I think that they felt really proud that they were able to give their perspective on what challenges them and you know the the feedback that they get from their staff and we were able to get a really effective policy and give them a lot of guidance on how to enforce that policy and i think that gave me a better outcome as an infection preventionist because now instead of saying you know oh it's an infection control policy that leader is able to speak to the policy a lot more clearly and you know have that one on one with their staff instead of it being like a infection prevention is coming in and being the hygiene police. It's, this is what we all do. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I, I know I've, I was wondering when we were going to talk about the fact that IPAC is, is infection prevention is used as like a scapegoat all the yes. time for like, and we'll be like, we never said that. Like, yes. what? they're like, this is an IPAC rule. I've had people like call me and say, Hey, I'm sorry. IPAC said this. And I'm like, I, I am. am. <laughs> I am. I back. And I don't think we said that. Um, it's all the time. Yeah. Know, and, um, yeah. The collaboration. I think you. You said. You said it right. Where you're like, it's a lot of like work to get it right, and like the amount of labor you put in. And what what I find is that you put in a lot of work to build that trust with people that they can like rely on you and work with you. But there are, um, like, once you've built that trust and that communication, then you've opened the door for them to, like, be able to contact you for questions. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have that, the questions are still being asked. They're just not being brought up to you. You know right. what I mean? Like, and then you open that up and you're, like, realizing, oh, my gosh, yeah, there's, like, a lot of education needs on this unit. Or, man, we've got some work to do here. So, um, it's like labor to get it started, but then you benefit from it because now they know they can trust you, they can bring right. things to you and you get like a better sense of what's actually happening. Uh, because you're right, like we're perceived as like authority in a lot of situations or like quote unquote the police. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been told that like to my face, oh, you're the drink police. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, cause OSHA did this, yeah. you know, we can't have these drinks. Yeah. And it's really about like staff safety. Like it's n about nothing else other than that. Right. So you don't like drink urine contaminated, <laughs> you know, water bottles. Exactly. <laughs> but we, we became, you know, there's a point where I think we were the drink police and it's like, yeah. we, we do so much more than that, you know? And so yeah. it's getting people to like take ownership of it, like you said, and infection prevention is everyone's responsibility. And we it say is. that all the time, but like, 
we really don't enact it. You know what I mean? And yeah. like people, I think we need a reminder for people. And what you did is a perfect way to do that. Like put their names on the, the like initiative, you know, like mm-hmm. give them some responsibility in it. And then you've kind of like forced them to take responsibility for infection prevention in their area. Yeah. Um, I love that. That's a great, that's a great. Okay. So now um, we are going to get into some personal insights. Um, I wanted to hear just like kind of your um, personal experiences with some of these questions. Um, are there specific industries or like settings outside of healthcare that like you can see maybe can benefit from infection prevention and control or like you've seen crazy practices in <laughs> infection control? I think one area that has come up a lot and even through APIC is schools colleges, high school, like every level of school, I think there is a benefit to think about infection control practices. Um, You know, even when I was growing up, one person got sick, everybody got sick, everybody's out, you know, no one stays home if they've got the cough and everything going on. But to have an additional resource, I know that's something that happened in Missouri is that they look for volunteers or you know, someone to fill a role to help assist in infection control practices at schools because we saw such a huge impact on what COVID could do and how detrimental that could be. You know, if no one can come into school or everybody's getting sick, they're spreading that to their families, but the impact of not being together and, you know, how that's going to impact the educational value of being at home all the time, that social aspect of all of that, I think, schools really could benefit from a more robust infection prevention, even like a type of plan. Mm -hmm. I think historically, you know, there's, there's always the thought of the correct infection control practices. This is kind of stemming from a book that you and Maggie had actually recommended to me, The Premonition, which I finished this year and was really insightful, I think, of how infection prevention practices have been around for such a long time. And the things that we did for COVID are things that they they did in the past to help prevent the spread of other diseases. And so utilizing those practices and having a better plan in place and the explanation behind all of you know, these practices, why they do work, I think that would be really beneficial to the education system so that we can kind of prevent these losses in the educational value of what we're currently seeing, you know, the impact that it's had on students and teachers. Um, I think it's been really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we saw this like explosion of infection prevention. Um, like I, the way that I kind of describe it to people, it's like when COVID happened, we we were like astronauts on the ISS <laughs> and we're doing all these things and it's very specific to us. So like mm-hmm. no one really interferes with what we're doing. And no, honestly, no one really cares what we're doing. <laughs> like, they don't care to ask. <laughs> But then it's like, okay, now all of a sudden the entire population is on the ISS with you and like doing all of this. (laughs) And you have to like, you know, you're trying to share and like everyone is a expert in infection control, germ transmission or whatever. So, yeah. But I think it revealed a lot of these like fractures in the way that we can communicate germ transmission and like safety in these settings, especially schools. Yeah. Um, And that kind of leads me to like, Outside of healthcare, like what are some like infection control, like faux pas that you see that are happening? Like the, my example, of, well, first of all, you mentioned like 
you know, washing your hands at a restaurant. I was at a restaurant uh, last week. <laughs> I went to the restroom. It was a nice restaurant. So like people are wearing ties, you know, I don't wear ties because <laughs> it's like the ultimate fomite, you know, <laughs> laying on patient beds and then going to the next patient, yep. not getting cleaned. Um, this guy, I was washing my hands and it's like a two sink, you know, and the guy came, this guy came up and he had a tie and he's like, starts wetting his hands under the water, but his, his tie, tie is getting wet. And so then he puts his hand behind the tie and flips it behind, but the water on his hand splashes across my face. Oh, no. as <laughs> and I'm sitting there like in like slack jawed, like complete yeah. awe. He doesn't notice he's in a rush washes his hands and leaves and i'm like just like blinking my eyes like trying to get the his hand water off my face frozen (laughs) i was like how is that even possible that you know i mean i guess it was good that he wanted to get this tie out of the sink but then it splashed my face at what cost though exactly right um yeah so like infection control faux pas in the environment like another one i can think of is like there's a very um, popular like body care and uh, candle store uh-huh. <laughs> that I think we're both aware of. And they have like candle day, right? Where you like, yeah. it's like a cheap candle, like a three wick or whatever. And I was there in 2019. Um, and like then shortly after, like all of this kind of went down and I'm like, okay, a month and a half ago, I was sticking my nose into 300 candles in a room crowded of people all doing the same thing and i'm like i think that needs to stop (laughs) that is not safe for us to be like sticking our snozzes into these candles and then going on because i think there's actually like you're many people are actually touching oh like probably and then i'm like thinking about do microbes how long do microbes live on like candle wax like i'm sure it's a pretty good like uh, source of like nutrients for <laughs> or yeah or even like the constant like you have to pick up the candle you have to take touching, the lid off right yeah so everybody's touching the same thing yeah so any what do you think any other like faux pas and infection control that you see in the like outside of our work environment I think this one might fit maybe not but it's something that I find really interesting that people think is maybe effective But uh, my mind goes to cleaning products and how things are cleaned at home. Um, Even in the hospital setting, what we struggle with is people to get do it the contact time. So um, if you're an infection preventionist, you know that certain wipes are two minutes, some are four minutes, some are one minute. You know, if you're lucky to have those one minute wipes, you know, safely using products, effectively using products, you know, you buy a, a wipe and you think it's going to be effective and it's going to kill everything and people being over-reliant on that instead of using the products effectively and looking at them and seeing what does this actually kill, you know, for the certain illness that I have, if I'm having a diarrhea, you know, is this going to be good and not perpetuate the spread to my family members if I'm using this cleaning product, you know what I mean? So I don't know if that kind of falls into what you're asking, but yeah. I definitely think that's one is like this height of, oh, buy all these different cleaning products and this is going to protect you when really it's a lot more simple um, if you're doing the correct process. 
So I always find that funny of people kind of cleaning everything down with just a wipe, just wiping it down once and being like, oh, it's good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is, um, have you seen like, so like the opposite of that, have you seen unusual places where like you've seen like really good infection control practices? Like, yes, I have a really good example okay, yeah. actually. And okay. so I went on a cruise this year. I went on a Disney cruise. Oh, wow. And if you've ever been, uh, this is the first cruise I've ever been on. Um, but they actually have sinks that you have to wash your hands. Somebody stands there and tells you to wash your hands before you go into the food buffet area. And I love that because, you know, you should wash your hands with soap and water before you eat, after you use the bathroom. So you really want to get everything off of your hands. You want to wash that stuff away. And I thought that was amazing because you think a lot of food places just have hand sanitizer, which is really effective too. I just thought that was really kind of a genius thing for them to do because I've never seen that type of enhanced infection control practices. And I don't know if that was a pre-COVID thing and they've always had that or if it's like something that they've implemented in the last few years. But my infection prevention heart grew by like three sizes when I was walking in there for the first time I saw that I was like, this is amazing. I love this. Yeah, that's a really good one. You bring a really important perspective here. And this was kind of goes along with one of our listener questions. Um, Thank you listeners for submitting your questions. Um, You can do that directly to me or on our um, incoming um, Instagram that you'll see coming out for this podcast. So I will drop that in when I have the link. Um, You are an IP who is not a registered nurse. Correct. And uh, that is such an important perspective. And I think it's like a really good evolution of our profession. You know, I think when we think back to the history of IP, it's like it was kind of started by nurses in the healthcare environment, but it has expanded so far beyond that. And I think for good reason. Um, So how has your experience been as an IP with a background outside of nursing? I think it has come with pros and cons, certainly. Over time, I think my perspective of being you know, from a non-clinical, non-nursing background has shaped what I can bring to the table. And at first I was really intimidated by not being a nurse. I actually had a very difficult time, you know, when I was in grad school looking for places to go to just shadow. I had a lot of people turn me down because I didn't have a nursing background. And that was really interesting to me because as I was getting, you know, more information about infection prevention in the field. None of the people that I worked with or talked with were actually nurses. So I didn't even know that it was kind of a a nursing role traditionally. So that was kind of like a shock to me. And like, I was like, oh, like I, am I even allowed to be in this field? Um, Because the first time I had even heard, you know, we talked about me discovering infection prevention as an undergrad student in a college of public health. Um, the professor who taught that class had an EMT background um, and she was an epidemiologist. So I had absolutely no idea. Um, and then the next experience I had was um, with someone who had uh, a laboratory background and was an epidemiologist. 
And then the first person I met as an infection preventionist had his MS in epidemiology. So it was really like eye-opening to me that I'm the, I was kind of the outsider coming in when traditionally I was like, oh, like this is not a nursing field. Um, but then getting a lot of rejection right off the bat was hard. And it made me kind of not want to do it, I think. I think now looking back, I'm like, I'm glad that I kind of powered through it. I talked to a lot of students and PH students that don't have nursing backgrounds that really want to get into infection prevention. And they reach out to me because I don't have that background. And they're like, well, how did you do it? You know, they kind of went through the same thing. And I try to, you know, rally them and say, like, you can do it. You know, you just have to have the right resources. And the field really is changing. I think the more demand that we've had for infection preventionists, the opportunities have certainly opened up. I know a lot of great IPs who don't come from a nursing background who have given me advice on how to, you know, ask the right questions and not be afraid to say like, hey, you know, I don't come from a nursing background. Can you explain that to me in a different way? You know, I don't really understand what you're talking about. So that can be kind of a difficult thing to say um, when, you know, you have a lot of nurses that you work with and you're guiding them on safe practices on something that you personally have never had to do. I've never had to insert a Foley into somebody, but now I'm going to audit you and make sure that you're doing the right things. But I think that goes back to the idea of infection prevention is a lot more than nursing. We work with everybody in the hospital. Um, You know, I don't, think that you have to necessarily have a nursing background to understand the lab, to understand housekeeping, to understand SPD. There are so many things. Our scope of practice is so much more than just the bedside nursing role. That has been really helpful for me is I also don't have this bias that it's always the nurse's fault. It's always something that the nursing staff did. And we tried to pull in all of these other ideas like, you know, have we tried looking at what the physicians are doing, have we, you know, considered these other options that it always doesn't have to come back to nursing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that for me has been helpful. It goes back to that collaboration pieces. I don't think it should just be one specialty. It shouldn't just be one type, like a nurse who's responsible for ensuring everything in the hospital is going to plan for infection prevention because it, like I said, it's so much more than just focusing on what that one role is doing. I do see a lot of disadvantages for not having a nursing background, though. So going back to asking a lot more questions or having to take a little bit more time to understand a process because I've never done it. Or, you know, I'll have a surgical nurse just kind of going off talking about all these things. And I'm like blank staring like, Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Or they'll ask me about a machine and I'm like, I, I really don't know what that is. I'm going to have to you know, dig a little bit more or can you take me to it so we can talk about this. So I think the learning curve on the clinical side is it's really hard. It continues to be a struggle for me. But, you know, you ask the right questions, you go and shadow people, um, you get their perspective on it. And I think they're a lot more open and willing to accept you as not being a nurse, but still kind of being that authority or that person who is the expert in kind of those, quote, 
nursing practices that um, we're trying to improve. So it comes with a lot of good and bad. I love having a diverse team, though, where you have, and we've talked about this a lot too, you have the nurses, you have the lab background, you have the public health background, but then you kind of pull in those other people like surgical techs. They're not going to know, you know, all of the other practices, um, but they certainly bring something to your team that's going to make you just that much more stronger and knowledgeable about infection control practices. So I think that's where we come in as the epidemiologists, the public health backgrounds is we like to ask a lot of questions. We like to involve everybody. We kind of have that perspective of everybody needs to be involved with this. Yeah, that's a um, really good perspective there. And yeah, I agree. I think um, like the perfect infection prevention team is a group of people that have like just such a wide variety of backgrounds and professional backgrounds and like places they've worked before because that all just like informs us to be better. Um, and you're right. I think that like epi mind of being so curious is like one of the essential cornerstones for an IP is to mm -hmm. just ask a ton of questions and to like release yourself from thinking that you like are sure of anything kind of yeah. like what we talked about before. Yeah. Um, that is a great way. And I, I think like that's one of the things that is like a really great part of like a non-nurse IP role is they have that innate curiosity and that ability to do that. Um, are there any other like, uh, things with infection control that you might, you think maybe come easier because you're um, from a public health background? I think the statistics and actual, you know, using data to tell a story comes a lot easier for us that have, you know, gone through like an epidemiology program or have worked in public health um, because it is difficult. You know, I think when I speak to nurses in the infection control role, um, and ask them, like, what has been your biggest struggle? It always comes to that understanding the epidemiology side of it. It, it is hard. I feel like we have been able to support a lot more of that, like, using quality data and, you know, improving quality processes um, because we get, we've had to go through, you know, the ringer of understanding epidemiology um, and the importance of doing data a certain way or collecting it and then doing an analysis in a certain way, I think makes the programs stronger because we're able to talk through that, you know, to other people and be very confident in it and then be able to teach, you know, the people who have not gone through uh, the epidemiology programs or worked in public health on what we're talking about. So it's kind of like a back and forth thing. I love relying on my clinical people in this, in infection prevention because they have really great insight. They, you know, they've been out there, they've done that, they know what's going to work when you do an approach. Um, and so I think you pair that with somebody who has a public health background and sees it from the large, you know, data perspective. It's like the perfect harmony. All right. So now we are at our rapid fire round. We've got some fun, quick questions for our guests. So be ready. Um, <laughs> What is your favorite pathogen? I'm going to give you a curveball here and say that I, for a very long time, have always loved learning about HIV AIDS. Okay. Um, 
I know it's kind of a, an odd one to throw out as an IP because you use standard precautions yeah. <laughs> for, you know, somebody that has um, that disease. But when I get asked questions about it, I'm like, oh, you know, I love talking about the disease progression and um, really the science behind it and why we, you know, use standard precautions and how that has impacted the um, the role of the infection preventionist, because when you really look at the history of the development of our role, you know, it's been around for, for forever. You know, we had even the plague, they were doing infection control practices, um, but really with the um, HIV AIDS increasing in the United States, I think really brought to light what are the just normal practices that we need to do to keep us safe? You know, you consider every blood bodily fluid, everything uh, to be potentially infectious. And I think that is so powerful and such an interesting concept of infection prevention. So I think that that's why I go to that. Yeah, I love that. That's, um, I am a bit surprised that that's your answer, <laughs> but like, you're right. That like is a major point for just like our standard, you know, practices that we do. Um, and we could talk about standard precautions until the cows come home. It's like my favorite topic. Yes. Um, and maybe we'll do a special standard precautions episode. I yes. Think that'd be a good idea. What was the wildest day you had as an IP? I think my wildest day as an IP came the first time I had a true incident with tuberculosis exposures. Oh, yeah. Because this is something you always hear about. You always read about it. And you can try to prepare as much as you can. But I think there is panic that overtakes a lot of people involved when there is an actual TB exposure. Um, and I, I won't talk specifically about when this happened, where it happened, or what happened. I just think, you know, tuberculosis is such a confusing topic. It's a complex disease. And I, I even reached out to... <laughs> you to, to talk about you know, TB <laughs> prevention and how scary it can be because a lot of people don't think about TB being so present in the United States. I think it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, but there are so many people that have it that it's, it's something I was like, it's going to happen eventually. I you know, can try to prepare. I can have a policy. I can have all of this in place. There's so many people involved in that follow-up process that the first time it happened, I was scared. I I froze and was like, okay, I need to just walk through my process and do the right thing, make sure that people are informed that, you know, we're doing the best thing for everybody involved in this and doing a lot of education about, you know, how difficult it is to acquire TB, um, that you're not going to get it if you just walk past somebody. Yeah. Um, so taking like all of this stuff and bringing it down, like siloing it into something manageable was very difficult. So it, of course, was not just a one day process. But I think that first initial day, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, here we go. This is my first time. So yeah. I, I think that was probably the the hardest or wildest day that I had as an yeah. IP. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is about. I mean, there's times when I think like, why does TB bring such panic to people? And I think it's because it's like so complex and I think it deserves it Yeah, because it kills 4,000 people a day globally. Like yeah. it's a crazy, you know, rate of like impact that it has on 
populations across the globe. So, um, and I think we're just like, sometimes we live in this world where we don't think it impacts us. And like, you know, we don't do the vaccine, we don't do any of that, but like, you know, we have seen upticks in it, especially in like our area and our region, like we have seen yeah. more of it. So. And the ramifications it can have for your long-term health, totally. you know, the types of medications that you can take, um, you know, what you have to be careful if you get hospitalized and have different pneumonias, it, yeah. it does have a really big impact. And I, I think there's just a misunderstanding of TB overall um, in in our not maybe not our profession, but maybe in the healthcare field yeah. of the prevention piece of it and how it really does impact somebody in the long term. Yeah. Um, okay. What 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 advice would you give the novice IP version of yourself? If I could go back to day one <laughs> and give myself a piece of advice, knowing what I know now, is that you're not going to know everything. Yeah. And we've talked about this, right? It's you're going to learn something new every day. Just take a deep breath. Don't let it consume your entire day if you didn't know the answer to that one thing. It's yeah. okay to not know everything. Um, and you're you're a forever student as an infection preventionist. You're always going to want to know more. You're always going to want to get better in something. So just take a deep breath and you will learn it. It, the knowledge will come, the experience will come. Just give yourself a little bit of patience and believe in yourself because you will get there one day. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice. Okay, so um, now we're gonna move on to. Um, I felt I felt like I had to have like a COVID section in here. We've already talked about COVID. We're gonna keep talking about COVID. <laughs> I th I think we have to. Yes. And so this is caught up on COVID. Um, this is our section about, you know, we're just kind of reflecting on like the height of it. Not that it, we're reflecting on something that's over because it's certainly it's not still over. here. Um, and I want to make that clear. Um, and I wanted to kind of keep this light too, because it can get pretty dark and we had some dark times <laughs> <laughs> because if we don't laugh, we will cry. Okay. Yes. So uh, what makes you laugh? when you think of the height of pandemic, like what was something like funny that you remember that happened that like still makes you laugh? <laughs> I, I don't know if you had this experience, but there was a point in time where we were doing the most to be creative with PPE. Oh, sure. um, and, you know, having random places donate things to us or all these, but there was one incident that happened where we had a group of people who did a PPE fashion runway oh, yeah. type thing. Did you do this too? Well, I think I saw it online at one point. Yeah. Like there was this trend that was like, can you use like random PPE or like not PPE and make it PPE? Yeah. Um, of course we weren't doing this to go into COVID rooms, but it, I just thought that was like such a weird thing that I, I don't think I would ever imagine doing in the healthcare field was having like a, a PPE fashion show um, to show off people's creativity. But yeah. I, I think about that. I'm like, why did we do that? That was so weird. But kind of like trying to make things better in a very difficult time, yeah, you know, totally. especially that first year of COVID, like in 2020, 
um, as things started ramping up, you know, there wasn't a lot of time or room for laughing or, you know, having a good time. You weren't getting sleep, you weren't eating healthy and, you know, everybody was constantly stressed, but we did those random things really that like tried to cheer people up. And I thought, I thought that was really. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I mean, I do. Now that I can like reflect on it, when that first started, like the at the very beginning, there was like a sense of this like camaraderie that we had as like in a profession. And mm-hmm. like I think I was lucky to have like a team of people too, you know. Um, like we we've got a pretty large team where it's like lots of people and we all just kind of were there for each other. And um there's a point where because like do you remember when we at first we had to get approval to test someone for COVID? Yes. <laughs> And so people don't realize this, like these like forms we had to fill out, which were paper forms. Yep. <laughs> I remember we would just toss them in the middle of the office on the floor when we were done with them. Oh. The stack just got higher and higher. And we're like, okay, I does does the does the public know how much like is hinging on a fax machine when it comes to public health? Like yeah. we are we are it's a facsimile. Like we're talking about it fast. Yep. It's like in this day, it's, it's, you know, at that time it was 2020. It's like, we are still relying on this like facts to get this like crucial information yep. to these different like federal, like governmental agencies. And it's like, what is happening? Yeah. Just like thinking of the evolution of yeah. <laughs> the approach to testing, isolation, like ending isolation, doing exposure follow-ups. Those were so time consuming and tedious. And, you know, early on when we had to report um, just everything on every patient that had COVID and, you know, at, I'm sure where you are, you had probably like six times the amount of COVID patients that I had in any of the hospitals I worked at. But, you know, for example, you'd have 30 patients that you're collecting all of this for you're writing it on a piece of paper you know you're trying to get it all together you send your faxes off to the health department not really knowing what that follow-up was going to be but you're just sending it to them you're like you know I've done my reporting duty but it was it was a lot and we probably have so many spreadsheets and just trying to figure out how to maintain like a list of patients and I know and I think it is something that does make me laugh about the struggle that we went through was you'd put all of this work into a like a beautiful process and then within hours or days, you know, the CDC was changing something. Yeah. So you'd have like the seven day isolation, the 14 day, the 10 day, and it got really like, yeah. you know, you're, I'm just trying my best. Infection preventionists were a little bit of middlemen who were making really big decisions right. on a hospital level, trying to work with public health and CDC, and it was just it was a hot mess for for a bit. Yep, I agree. Um, what things did we change, like as a society during <laughs> COVID, that or even in healthcare that we should keep that like should not go back to what it, the way it was pre COVID? I love the idea of so we have those enhanced infection control practices or those measures that a lot of people didn't take seriously before but 
things like social distancing, I love. I love yeah. having a bubble and that it's not weird anymore or as much to kind of stand back from somebody in public or just keeping some distance between you. Masking when you're sick, I don't think I really know. Like I've never experienced someone wearing a mask if they had a cough or they weren't feeling well. And this, I think, goes more on the public side, um, that people are more willing to mask because they kind of understand that um, the power of masking. So I, I love that. And more frequent hand hygiene. I, I am a hand hygiene queen. As an IP, and you probably have picked up on this, I love everything about hand hygiene from the science to the technique. And just how many more people have become aware of like why you should be like using the hand sanitizer when you walk into Target. Like, I don't remember that being there before COVID. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like you have a lot more opportunities um, in public spaces to perform hand hygiene or grab a mask or, you know, do those things to help you stay safe <laughs> from other people. Um, and so I think that that enlightenment of if you're sick, like don't get other people sick, don't come to work sick, don't, you know, really pushing that if you are sick, don't come to work. Yeah, that has been a really big one that I think should stay because as healthcare workers, we are not very good about, you know, staying home. Um, but I think this has been a very strong reminder of the impact that you can have if you're sick. And then now the person who sits next to you is sick and their family's sick. So I think that's been a big one. Yeah, that's huge. I think just like general awareness of yeah. germ transmission, which I was kind of like, uh, there was a point where I'm like, oh gosh, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Like everyone's got an opinion. But like now I do think it's helped impact like people's health and safety kind of for, and like my example of that is my dad, like man's man works outside all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if he ever like properly washed his hands before COVID, <laughs> but now like he does you yes. know and like I didn't even really it was kind of what he picked up about like what he should be doing and yeah. I think when you have all of that stimuli external stimuli like telling you you need to like make a change now he like washes his hands regularly and it's like this is huge you know yeah it has such a big impact it's the little things that really do impact yeah not getting sick or not spreading something yeah agreed and then um do you have any like memes that you remember throughout covid that you love like something that like a joke or like a something you saw online that you can remember that just kind of brings a smile to your face when you think about it yes one thing that i love and it still pops up from time to time for me is those pictures of people in grocery stores that use really random things as masks. Totally. Or, yes. you know, they would have like one of those huge five gallon jug water bottles. They cut the top off and put that on <laughs> like a helmet um, as like their mask because we were required to mask yes. in public places. So that always gets me going because it's like people would just do the wildest things to follow the rules, you know, to their standards. And yeah. just like, I'm trying to think of some other good ones, like people who wear like cones on their faces. Yes. And oh, that just cracks me up because you know, it's not working, but it's still. Yeah, I think it gives you I think at the time, I was probably horrified at that. But right. now I look back and I'm like, 
that's kind of funny and uh the one that came up for me in my like memories and i'll i'll just kind of go through like my liked tweets from the last mm-hmm. you know, several years and it was one where there was a baby being baptized and oh with the water the gun police had the water gun spraying it yeah. across the room <laughs> and the mom's like holding it yeah. like simba <laughs> i've seen that one i love that one so um, I'm planning on posting some of these memes that we talk about in these episodes for uh, the Instagram post that's associated with this episode. So I will share some of those um, because I know we're on an audio format and we'll add that visual so that everyone can enjoy. Okay, well, thank you so much, um, Casey, for being my first guest on the podcast, uh, Prevention Pod. Um, I'm so happy you were able to join me today and sharing all of your perspectives and your feedback. Um, I just really appreciate it. So thank you so much for being on. Um, any last uh, comments or final words? I just want to say thank you for letting <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> thank you so much for... <laughs> say it like a normal person (laughs) thank you so much for having me as your first guest i'm so excited for this to get started and for you to reach so many people in this field who are curious about what we do or curious about how they can grow as an infection preventionist if i had to leave one piece of advice is (laughs) (laughs) wash your hands (laughs) Yes, one piece of advice, (laughs) wash your hands. Yeah, that's a good one. You know what? We're we're still workshopping the end of... (laughs) Yeah, it's like a really awkward, abrupt end. Okay, bye. (laughs) Okay, bye. Um, I want everyone to like and uh, subscribe. And also, um, if you like this podcast, leave a rating and a review. Um, That's how we get more traction, get more followers, get more interest in it. If you didn't like it, uh, do not rate. Do not <laughs> review. <laughs> Just leave us alone. We've been through enough. Um, so really appreciate it. Um, we're going to have a monthly interview with this pod um, with different IPs in the region. So I'll be working on that. Um, we have a Instagram that I'm currently making right now. So that will come out soon. And um, I'm going to put Casey's socials on our description too so you can follow along i'll put mine as well um and so check us out there and we will see you all next time on the prevention pod prevention pod an infection prevention podcast is hosted by me lance williamson listeners can email us feedback and questions at prevention.podcast at gmail.com We're also on Instagram at prevention.pod. Our music was composed by Dan McIntosh. This podcast represents the opinions of the host and his guests to the show. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. All scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been generalized and changed to protect confidentiality.